Uh, let's ask God uh, to do the work only he can do uh, in our hearts. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray in your mercy that we would now know uh, the work of your word in our hearts, that it would help us to trust Jesus for eternal life and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we will be people who are equipped to live as your children now. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. After 25 years of living in a wheelchair, my paralysed body is beginning to break down. I shouldn't complain. I haven't suffered through the usual lung and kidney infections that accompany quadriplegia. I've enjoyed miraculously good health for years. All that changed in 1991. For me, it was a year of blood pressure problems, drastic weight loss, infections, and worst of all, pressure sores on my side and back. For three long weeks, two stubborn sores forced me to bed, and who could guess how long it would take to close those oozing wounds? I start with this quote from a quadriplegic woman, some of you might know, Joni Erickson Tata, because I think that while we are able-bodied, it's hard for us to imagine what it would be like not to have the use of our legs, to be confined to our beds or wheelchair, not to run and kick a ball, not to be able to work or take ourselves to the toilet or the fridge, not to be able to stroll outside and feel the sun on our faces, to be dependent on others, sidelined from life. For 38 years, the man in John 5 had been an invalid, and now he was confined to his mattress amongst the other invalids in the colonnades surrounding the pool of Bethesda. Waiting, waiting for the cure promised to the first person who entered the pool after the waters were troubled. Then with the command, get up, pick up your mat and walk, Jesus brought that helplessness, that boredom, that despairing waiting to an end. Now that of itself is remarkable. But what is more remarkable, even shocking, are the words that Jesus speaks to him when he finds him again. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It's shocking, firstly, because how could anything be worse than having no use of your legs? lying paralysed for 38 years, lying there day in, day out, the discomfort, the pity, the helplessness, seeing life pass him by. What would he have missed in those 38 years? Think of it, all that rich experience, the joys of growing relationships, marriage, children, the small triumphs of personal achievement. None of that had been his. His lot had been days stretching into another day of the same. The same walls to stare at, the same useless legs to drag about, the same hopelessness, knowing he had no one to take him into the pool. A painful monotony. Now some might have said he would have been better off dead. Some say that today. A relative of Janie, that quadriplegic woman I quoted earlier, said when her initial injury stabilised, such a shame, so unfortunate, she'd be better off 
if she'd never made it. Now, we might not say that, but I suspect many of us think that. That death is preferable. How could anything be worse than what this man had already experienced? But Jesus says there is something worse, and he lets us know what it is. Do not be amazed at this, he said, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. This something worth is not something death spares you from. It is something death brings you to. The resurrection to judgment, to condemnation, where God pronounces a just verdict on your life and then executes his sentence. Elsewhere in the New Testament, say Matthew 25, our Lord Jesus speaks of the content of that resurrection to condemnation as everlasting punishment. There is something worse than suffering in this life, says Jesus. Resurrection to judgment. Now that's shocking to us in an age that wants to believe that you die and then you rot and that's the finish of it. But Jesus with these words to the healed man shocks us in another way as well. It's quite plain that Jesus thinks that sin, disobedience to God, missing the mark in our behaviour, causes and deserves this something worse. Stop sinning, he said or something worse may happen to you. How could sin be that serious? For the consensus view in our society is that sin, if we still use that old-fashioned language, is pretty trivial. Perhaps I told a lie to my parents. So what? It got me out of trouble and it prevented a fuss. They didn't need to know and it was no big deal. Oh, perhaps I fudged a little on my income tax. That doesn't mean I'm not a good person, because let's face it, the government's greedy, I've worked hard for the money and I'm going to use it much better than they will. Oh, maybe I do run people down in conversation and abuse them to their face, but it's only words, and if they're not tough enough to take it, their problem. Oh yeah, I've used other people's stuff without telling them, but they weren't using it. And so what if I have sex with someone I'm not married to? We're adults, we both wanted it, it felt so good. Lying, stealing, slander, gossip, unkindness, rudeness, sexual indulgence, not such a big deal, everybody does it. But wait a minute. Before we dismiss sin as no big deal, let's think about what sin does. Those hurtful words, they crush a spirit fill a day with misery, breed resentment and hatred, poison a community. Those lies create distrust and habitual dishonesty destroys families and marriages, corrupts businesses, ruins economies. That sexual immorality leaves scars, making achieving the intimacy that cures our loneliness harder. Devalues commitment, fuels deceit. Theft brings poverty and insecurity. Violence brings grief and a great burden of fear and anger. Sin, not living God's way, is no trivial matter, even measured by its impact on others. But sin is more. All sin involves treating our Creator, the living God, with contempt. See, it's God who said, don't lie, don't steal, honour your father and mother. And when you do those things, you're saying, 
I know better than that, God. What do you know? And our sin isn't behind God's back. We do it in his face because he sees and knows all things. So think, what does that kind of contempt deserve? God is our creator. He gives us life. He gives us every good thing. He is wise and just, holy and good. How can we measure the seriousness of standing in the living God's face and saying, you know nothing. You don't deserve to be listened to. I'll do what I want with the life and good gifts you give and sustain. Just you get out of my way. In Jesus' eyes, sin is serious. And those who sin deserve to rise to condemnation and eternal punishment. Now, some of you may be feeling a little uncomfortable with hearing this. Perhaps not uncomfortable, but irritated and angry with this talk of sin and resurrection to judgment and eternal punishment. You might see this kind of talk as just trying to manipulate people through fear, just trying to scare, not warn. Now, why do we react that way? Well, it's because in our society we've been taught that religion is not about truth, it's about morality. Oh, and the church, when it talks of judgment, is just trying to act like a moral policeman and maintain its influence in society. With this understanding, talk of judgment and punishment is really a form of moral bullying and offensive coming from a group of people whose moral authority has been discredited, discredited by the recent Royal Commission. But there are two problems with that position. Firstly, the Christian faith is not primarily about morality or social influence. It's about a relationship with the living and true God. And secondly, that position begs the truth question, the question of the reality of heaven and hell. It assumes without proving that there is no heaven and hell. Now, perhaps like John Lennon, you'd like to imagine things that way. But imagination and reality are two different things, aren't they? So I might imagine myself kicking a goal in the World Cup but I don't think that will influence the Australian selectors, no matter how desperate they get. More to the point, I might imagine myself winning the Alpe d'Huez stage of the Tour de France. But that doesn't mean the recruiters from Sky Racing or BMC will ever knock at my door. If there is a resurrection and judgment, then not wanting to think there is won't change reality. And if there is a resurrection and judgment, that means I'm not trying to manipulate you by telling you about it. I am just warning you so that you can do something about it. You may not have realised that this is where your sin, your disobedience to God, your ignoring of God is leading. Jesus plainly taught that there is such a resurrection and judgment. These are his words. And in these matters, his words are true and reliable. But are they? That's the issue. Why should we listen to Jesus? You see, if Jesus is just a man, just a creature of his own time, sharing all the beliefs and superstitions of his time, well, there's no particular reason for us to listen to Jesus today. 
But that is not Jesus' estimate of himself. When he is questioned about healing this man on the Jewish Sabbath, he says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. His defence is that what's good for God is good for him. And the reason that's so is his relationship with God, whom he calls his own father. In fact, in verse 19, he says that what he does is dependent on the father, and he does whatever the father does. That is, his works are the works of God. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. And that means that listening to Jesus, you're actually listening to God, one who is equal to God. And he goes on to tell us in what ways, by the Father's gift, he is equal to God. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son that all may honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. Like the Father, Jesus can give life, resurrection life. And like the Father, he is humanity's judge. In fact, all judgment, he says, is in his hands. For the Father's will is that he, Jesus, the Son, shares equal honour with the Father. Now, they are extraordinarily, extraordinary claims, aren't they? Jesus says he is the authority on judgment, that he is the one who should be listened to, the one who can tell us what will really happen then, because he is the one who will judge. And so there can be no higher authority on judgment than Jesus. But is there any reason why I should share Jesus' estimate of himself? The people of Jesus' own day asked that and Jesus spoke in response of testimony, of witnesses. Now this is the language of the law courts. You see, how do you establish something as true or false in a court of law? How do you work out, for example, whether Joe Bloggs really did hit Bill Smith with a piece of 4B2? How do you work that out? Well, today we might you know, reference CCTV and forensics or records on mobile phones. Oh, and... People, people who witnessed the event. But in Jesus' day, all you have is the testimony of witnesses, people telling what, in a sense, they saw, what they knew. Reaching a conclusion is all about evaluating the evidence of the witnesses. And Jesus says that you can come to a conclusion about him, about who he is and whether or not he should be listened to and believed, by considering the testimony of the witnesses. And he lists four for us here. He starts by acknowledging that if his first hearers only had his word, that wouldn't be binding, for Jewish law required the evidence of two or three witnesses for a judgment to be reached. But he goes on to list, verses 33 to 40, four other witnesses for his hearers. There's John the Baptist, he says, somebody they recognise as a prophet of God who testified to Jesus. Oh, there was the, witnesses of, the witness of the works that Jesus was doing. 
You know, the healings, the later miraculous feedings, the casting out of demons, the raising of the dead. Then verse 39 he says, There are the scriptures, which for Jesus' Jewish hearers were God's word. Jesus was fulfilling the promises contained in them, promises given hundreds of years before. Oh, and yes, verse 37, there is the witness of God the Father himself. For the Jewish people of Jesus' day, Jesus is saying that both recognised authority and their own experience tell them that he is telling the truth about himself. But you might say, well, that was back then. What about now? Well, those witnesses still speak. We know more, say, of Jesus' fulfilment of the Old Testament than Jesus' audiences did then. You can read Isaiah 53 and see that. But more, we have the witness of the apostles, those who live with Jesus throughout his ministry, who knew Jesus and who give us eyewitness reports of what he said and did. They tell us of what God did to confirm the truthfulness of Jesus' message. They tell us God raised Jesus from the dead and that they saw him, talked with him, touched him and ate with him alive after being killed. And you can read about that for yourself in John 20 or Luke 24. That resurrection is God saying yes to Jesus in a way only God can. God saying yes, he is my son. God saying yes, he tells the truth. Now, some want to dismiss the witness of the apostles because it comes from almost 2,000 years ago now. But why? Were they any less able to tell the difference between the living and the dead than we are? That's a pretty fundamental distinction, and of course they were not less able than us. They were probably much more familiar with death than most of us. And God only needs to raise Jesus once, if it's witnessed by credible and reliable people who stick to what they say and if their testimony is accurately recorded for people of other times and places as it is in the Gospels. God doesn't need to keep having Jesus killed and raised again over and over again in history. Surely once is enough. See, think about it. How many times do you need to break the world 400 metres record to be proclaimed the world record holder? If you run your race before the right people, under the right, the approved conditions, with the approved timing devices, you only need to do it once, don't you? And if you do it in Australia, you don't need to repeat it in France or the US or China to be recognised as the world record holder. If you have credible and reliable witnesses, you only need to do it once. Jesus only needed to die and rise once. God has witnessed once and for all to the truthfulness of what Jesus has said by raising him from the dead. And God still witnesses to Jesus' truthfulness today by entrusting Jesus with the authority to give the Holy Spirit to those who trust him. The experience of those who trust Jesus today, who receive his spirit as he promised, Witnesses to the truthfulness of what Jesus says. And so believers have demonstrated the truthfulness of Jesus in their own lives, in the experience of forgiveness, of answered prayer, of changed lives. 
And so today there is evidence, there is witness for us to the truthfulness of Jesus. There's the witness from history, the apostles' witness in the New Testament documents. Oh, there is the continuing witness of recognised authority, Jesus' fulfilment of the Old Testament scripture. And yes, there is the witness of his people. All tell us Jesus should be listened to because he speaks the truth. In repeating what Jesus says about the resurrection and judgment, I'm telling you the truth. When you repeat it to others, you are telling them the truth. You are telling them what the authority, the authority and life and on life and judgment says. That a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. That is reality. And that means that we all have a problem because none of us are good. Oh yeah, I know these days we have a tendency to divide the world into good people and bad people, usually depending upon whether you know people have agreed with us on social media or not, right? But actually that's just a myth. None of us is good. We all sin. We have all done things that deserve God's just condemnation. Now, thankfully, declaring the reality of resurrection and judgment is not the only word Jesus speaks. He didn't come to earth just to tell us we had a problem because, let's face it, if we're honest, we probably knew we had a problem already, didn't we? Whether it's because we see the hurt our actions have caused others or know the hurt the actions of others have caused us or whether it's lying in weakness in a hospital bed or sitting in grief in a funeral chapel, we know humanity had a problem. We may not have expressed the problem the way Jesus does. We may not have thought it as serious as Jesus does, but we knew already we had a problem. Jesus didn't come just to tell us that. He is more than the fire alarm. He's the fireman who leads us to safety. He came to tell us there was a solution. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Jesus came with a message from God which, if believed, will spare you from God's just condemnation and give you eternal life, a life at peace with God, a life that will never know death again. Now what is the word that the Son of God speaks that can bring life to the dead, to people like us, to people living in a world characterised by darkness, lies and death? It's the word about Jesus and what he's done that he is the one sent from the Father, the one who speaks the truth of God, the one who gives life in death on the cross, gives his life in death on the cross to give us life. 
Now Jesus spoke again and again of that death and how through that death he would bring life to all those who believe in him. We've already heard Jesus speak of that in John 3. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes me may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus continued to speak of his death as the source of life. He returned to it again and again and drove people away by speaking of his death as the source of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, he said. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep so that they can have abundant life. The one who hears this word, says Jesus, and believes that this word I speak is the word of the living God, believes this is God's word because I am the Son of God sent from the Father, doing his will, come to save through my death. The one who hears my word and believes has eternal life, has now and forever. He or she will not be condemned you will not be condemned if you believe this word. Those who believe have already passed, says Jesus, from death to life. And so I guess that's the big question. Do you hear Jesus' word spoken to you today? Do you believe Jesus when he speaks, when he promises life? Not all who heard Jesus speak believed. In fact, Jesus warned that believing isn't easy, even for those who had the witness of the scriptures, were perhaps most familiar with them. You study the scriptures, he says to his first hearers, diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, why did they refuse to come? Was it some deficiency in the evidence? No, says Jesus, the problem was in their hearts. I know you, he says, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. And again, verse 44, how can you believe since you accept glory, that is praise and acceptance from one another, and do not seek the glory, the praise that comes from the only God? For all their religion, the focus of those first hearers was not on God and what he thought of them. They had no love of God in their hearts. That is, they didn't want God in control. They did not want to give themselves to do his real will. Rather, they valued winning the approval and praise of their peers, being well thought of by their friends and colleagues in doing what they themselves wanted. Now, what holds you back from believing Maybe it's not these days a commitment to your understanding of the Old Testament. Perhaps you say, no, it's a, it's a commitment to reason. Is that what you think will give you life, the source, be the source of the good life? Well, reason says that if God raised Jesus from the dead, it is right to trust him. And when the transmission of the evidence and the content of the testimony of the apostles is examined, 
It's actually reasonable to believe we have eyewitness testimony to the resurrection and that the explanation these eyewitnesses give of their experience, the explanation that God raised Jesus from the dead, is actually the most reasonable of all the explanations offered for what they've experienced. If you doubt that, come and talk about the resurrection with me. But before that, consider whether the problem is not the evidence, but your heart. Whether reason itself won't accuse you on the last day. And if what I've said has made you uncertain about what to believe, well, come and examine the evidence afresh. We would love to help you do that. But many of you here this morning, by God's grace, do believe Jesus' word and believing know that you have eternal life and will not be judged but have crossed over from death to life. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing to know? It's breathtaking, isn't it? To be able to say that to yourself, you have eternal life, knowing it's not because you are good or outstanding in any way, but because God is gracious and has given his son to be the sacrifice for your sins. If that's you, if you know you're believed and believing, but passed over from death to life, won't come into judgment. Well, let your faith in Jesus show by honouring Jesus as God's Son. That is the Father's will. Honouring him by giving him with the Father your worship, the praise that's due to God. Honouring him by loving him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, the love that's due to God. And in loving Jesus, being committed to conforming your thinking, your speaking and your acting to his will. Yes, if you know believing Jesus, you have eternal life, honour him by being willing to stand apart in an age that seeks to promote multi-faith activity, that wants to obscure the differences between faiths. Honour him by being willing to stand apart by saying that the true God can only be known and worshipped where Jesus is confessed as his son. And that where the son is not confessed, there is no true knowledge of God. Honour him by saying that the religions of the world or the heresies that deny Jesus as the eternal son of the father are not worshipping God or pleasing to God and there is no life in them because they do not have the son. Oh yes, if you believe Jesus' word, that whoever hears his word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed from death to life. Honour Jesus by living with a confident hope, a confident hope that will both die with courage and we should because we trust God's word and pay with joy the cost of now confessing Jesus as the Son of the Father, equal to the Father in doing the work of God, pay the cost with joy because you know that his word gives you life and will raise you to life and his word will give life to all, your family, your friends, 
all who trust him and that because it is the life-giving word that must be heard, it should be stated clearly, boldly, without reservation and with urgency. Whoever hears my word, says Jesus, and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Is that you? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of Jesus that gives life. We thank you that his word gives life because he is your eternal son who came to do your will, the Lamb of God, dying for our sins on the cross. We pray that in your mercy, you would grant us to honour our Lord Jesus by living with the confident hope he gives and by confessing him boldly as your son whose word will bring life to all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.